how how I suppose did you first get into this this subject? Was your background um, in in science or in religion or in anything in particular? Well, um, I really got interested as a kid, and I was very much um, a science geek as a little kid, but heavily into science fiction and comic books. And um, my dad worked for NBC, so I had a TV set when I was two years old, and watched a lot of shows that had. You know, nothing's, well, I guess the Twilight Zone be considered scary by some people, but I watched old TV shows that involve psychic powers and really comic books got me interested. And then we had a couple of shows besides Star Trek. Star Trek really kind of crystallized some of that. And then there was a soap opera here called Dark Shadows in the 60s, uh, which featured, of course, vampires and werewolves, but also had uh, talked about parapsychology, and that sent me to the library to look and find the books by J.B. Ryan and some of the other luminaries in the field. Um, I ended up starting a parapsychology club in my high school, got to meet some New York area parapsychologists when I was a teenager. And uh, I, while I started in astrophysics, uh, I quick, I switched over to cultural anthropology since it ended up being a better fit for me. And, and uh, Northwestern University had a number of courses looking at supernatural magical beliefs of peoples around the world, which fit perfectly um, with parapsychology, especially since my advisor, who was one of the professors there, was subscribing to the Journal of Parapsychology. So that really kind of pushed me, um, kind of crystallized that, plus timing-wise, JFK University here in the West Coast had a graduate parapsychology program for about 10 right, years. Right. And I was able to get into that. So everything so, aligned up perfectly for you. Yeah. The universe conspired against me, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, what what main area of parapsychology would you say is your focus? Or do, do you just generally look at the whole field as a whole? Well, as I, I mean, I'm, I consider myself mainly an educator, especially these days. Uh, I've been teaching courses in the subject, both for the graduate school after I finished back in the early 80s, and also for some other universities occasionally. Um, and then right now I teach courses for a, a course for Atlantic University and also for uh, the Ryan Research Center. But early on, uh, I found myself attracted to field work, to field investigation, as opposed to laboratory work. Uh, although I've done a lot, of, a little bit of laboratory work and consulted with some parapsychologists uh, for another reason, but I've mainly gotten known as like a ghost guy, you know, doing investigations of apparitions and hauntings and I'd, poltergeists. I'd love to do that. I think it freaked me out, yeah, but I don't related to do stuff. Um, so I, right now, we're actually just started a couple of new um, field investigations programs, certificate programs through the Rhine Center. So we're really going to be pushing a lot out on that. Great. So um, many in the scientific field, or at least in the sceptical field, consider anything parapsychology to be woo-woo, pseudoscience, not legitimate. Yeah. Well, why do you think that is? And, and what would you say to those that, that claim that? Well, for one thing, that that is a relatively new thing in some respects, in terms of the depth of that prejudice and bias, it is relatively new. And I think it was, I mean, personally observing things from the 70s through today, it's been in the mid 70s when PSYCOP got started, the skeptics organization got started. Uh, and then Randy you know, held sway over a lot of people. Uh, and 
just made it uh, focused on people's disbelief. I mean, there are, I understand that there are people that disbelieve, but to make it as unscientific and emotional, because it's incredibly emotional, uh, faith-based in some respects, uh, is a relatively new thing, although there have always been people in religion and in science who have been that way. Uh, it's, it's difficult, you know, I can't even talk to folks, and we have a problem here in the United States, of course, with politics. And it's the same kind of thing. I mean, you really have people who are unwilling to look at evidence. Uh, they're not skeptics. I, I don't care how often they call themselves skeptics. The very statement that many of them make that why would I look at the evidence or the data? It's not possible indicates they're not skeptics. Yeah, we, we, we see a lot of that as well over here. I think it's worldwide at the moment with the COVID situation and the vaccines. There seems to be so many. And it's so, as you say, it's so emotionally driven and yeah. people get so angry, and I just don't see why. And I never could understand, um, and actually, I, I was friends uh, with a couple of skeptics. I had a friend by the name of Bob Steiner, who was a fellow magician. So my background includes almost as long in the, in the world of magic and mentalism as in parapsychology. Um, I got into it because, of course, we had a JFK uh, when I was in grad school. And I stayed with it and performed. And since the uh, early 1990s, I've been performing as a mentalist and involved heavily involved with the Psychic Entertainers Association. Mm. So um, I have consulted with parapsychologists, but I actually got to know a couple of fellow magicians, one of whom was a founder of the Bay Area Skeptics, which is an organization that still exists to this day. And Bob, over time, realized that people are very sincere in their belief. And he, he was respectful of belief in people's beliefs. Um, and we had long conversations about the evidence. He actually looked at it. He just really didn't really want to. <laughs> I forced him to. Uh, and he said, well, but you're interpreting it one way and we would interpret a different way. I said, well, at least you're looking at the evidence. So many of these folks refuse to look at that. So there are truly skeptical people out there, but there are people who find something interesting to investigate or to, in, to look at in what we're dealing with without labeling it a psi or psychic. Right. I can give you an example. We have, there's a Brazilian um, spiritist who's also a psychologist as it happens during the daytime. You know, in spiritism in Brazil, people often are mediums at night. Right, right. Uh, they're after hours job. And Luis Gasparetto was someone who painted while he was in trance. I think I've, I've heard that name. Art, artistic masters. And he did a demo, um, did a, a presentation, came up from Brazil, and we had him do a workshop for us. But before he did the workshop, the night before, he did a, a really big uh, public thing where he did demonstrations of painting. And he, at one point, he was painting four paintings, like two with his hand, two yes, with his feet. that's right. And yeah. they were all in different artistic styles. Mm -hmm. And there were a group from the Bay Area Skeptics there who, I went over to them at the end because one of my friends was very active with them, another magician. And they were saying how he's a phony and he's a fraud. And Larry, my friend who's a skeptic said, said to them, are you crazy? Can you do that? He said, we should be looking at what's going on in his head. Yes. Forget about whether it's spirits or not. And that's a skeptical attitude. Indeed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you say, so many people call themselves skeptics, especially on the internet, around the YouTubes yeah. and the forums who are not skeptics, are materialistically minded people who believe that being skeptic being a skeptic is always being able to find a materialistic point for something. Right. 
Whereas, or to dismiss the evidence, dismiss the evidence without actually look or yeah. data without even looking at it. It's it's a presupposition that um, every uh, you know you could, you could argue induction that every um, phenomena has been identified as a materialistic basis. So therefore, right. we don't need to look at this evidence because we know it will be eventually found to be material. And I, that, that's what but, I that's what I find a lot. Yeah, and and I would argue with them about this, and I have argued with them about this. That okay, let's let's say that you're right that there is a normal explanation or material explanation for all this. Why is nobody else studying it? Why are, why are you leaving it to us to do that? Why aren't you looking into the questions of kids who remember previous lives? I mean, that's that in itself is a is one has huge amounts of evidence. It is certainly, and there's no good explanation because the materialists or other folks. Are not even willing to look at the evidence or no. look at those cases. Yes, and I mean I've I've spoken with Doctor. You probably know. I think he's in the Ryan Center as well, Doctor Jim Matlock. Yeah, I know Jim. Yeah, yeah. He, I've spoken with him a, a few times, and even just talking to him and hearing some of the cases, it's you know phenomenal. If if it has been as corroborated and verified as he says, now I've got no reason to disbelieve him. He's a very nice, sincere guy. Um, so, as a magician yourself, what what do you think to those activities of some of the more out well-known outspoken magicians such as uh, the late James Randi all respect to him um uh, Wiseman Richard Wiseman and, and say Darren Brown who are archly known as being debunkers right. or you know Randy was classed as the main voice of all skepticism yeah Randy was far from being a skeptic um Richard actually Richard Wiseman knows his stuff I mean he knows parapsychology uh, he just comes at it from a particular, from a materialistic perspective and has his own particular viewpoint on it. But I, I mean, I respect him more than most of the other folks, uh, except that, you know, honestly, I think that some of what he's done has been kind of stunt work to get publicity. Of course, well. there would always be that um, aspect, wouldn't there? That's the thing. Yeah. And, and of course, that's what Darren Brown's doing, too. I don't know how much I've met Darren. I don't know how much he actually believes or disbelieves, but uh He's, he's not interested, from what I understand, he's not interested in looking at the science, which is fine. He's an entertainer. That's okay. Randy, on the other hand, was who's responsible for a lot of the, a lot of the I think he may even be responsible for calling the stuff woo-woo uh, more than anyone else. Randy, uh, that, that recent uh, documentary about his life called An Honest Liar, I think the emphasis should be on liar in that instance. Uh, and, and it bothers me and it bothers a lot of us that the pseudo-skeptics will justify Randy lying uh, about things or misrepresenting things as long as it's in the cause of skepticism. You know, so that's incredibly dishonest. Uh, I've had my own run-ins with Randy over the years. Uh, he never really looked at the evidence whatsoever. He in some respects, um, you know, people were holding his million dollar challenge as the benchmark. Yes. But the reality is that the million dollar challenge was something that the best psychics and mediums, the ones who actually had lawyers, <laughs> would actually, I, I reviewed, I've been working in and around the legal community for a long time. And over time, I've written a number of things for Fate Magazine and other places about the rules of that, that uh, challenge, which is, of course, is no longer being offered, not since yes. 2015. Yes. And no one None of the lawyers who looked at this said if they had a client who was an athlete who could do something you know, relatively repetitively, a star athlete, and this was for a million dollar challenge for you to do it under our control yeah. as a star athlete, say, something perfectly normal. Yeah, say run, they would not run 100 meters in less than 12 seconds each time. Yeah, instance, they wouldn't yeah. let them do it. 
they, no. they would not let their clients do it. And the reason, there were several reasons for that. Um, and it really, it, a lot of my colleagues felt it was Randy wasn't going to be fair with the final test. It, it would be next to impossible to even get to the final test when it came right down to it for someone decent. Um, and then one of my colleagues actually worked with someone who did make it to Randy's tests. And they apparently ran her through many, many iterations, have her demonstrate every over and over again throughout the day so they could tweak their controls. And I completely understand that to a certain point to so yes, they feel comfortable yes, yes. when they felt comfortable. They, they, you know, she was like wiped out. This is hours later. And they insisted that she do it right then and there rather than giving her some time to relax because to rest, because they said she could figure out a way around our controls. Right. I see. If she was, if able she was to given that. time. So, yeah. That's disingenuous. It's not scientific. And the reality is that, um, and I've challenged many skeptics to this, if someone won the million dollars, will that change their mind? And absolutely not. It would not have changed anybody's mind. Mm. They would have thought that the person managed to dupe the challenge somehow. Yes. And in fact, that was one of the issues uh, from uh, the actual rules of the contest. Randy would own the results. You could not sue Randy if he said anything negative about you tough luck. I mean, you end up with a million dollars potentially, uh, but is that worth your reputation? Cause he could still call you a fraud. He could ru basically ruin you at that point. Yes. Yes. You're essentially signing, yeah, you're signing your whole reputation over to James Randy. Mm. It's, he owns you at that point. Yes, if you win. Indeed. So, um, worth uh, lose. Mm, indeed. Yeah. Regardless. So the common, um, rebuttal to the, I suppose, to the format of the challenge when we say it's not a fair challenge is that well the um the rules and regulations are completely determined by not only randy and his team but also by the person that's taking part they're free to you know correct cor 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 collaborate that's right yeah and I, I i think that's where that was okay um of course the people who are doing that may not have i think most of the people did the challenge were not if they were smart if not smart enough to read the rules and decide not to do it because of the rules, the other rules, um, not even the chant, the specific test, uh, then they probably weren't smart enough to figure out that that might not work. But the idea of, you know, agreeing at some point that this is, this is where it is after many hours of going through the process, uh, if they were not willing to agree to let you rest overnight or, or take a, a short rest, to get prepared for it again. Again, this is something an athlete would never do. This is something someone who was doing something intellectual would not do. You, you get drained, you get tired. And if you're yes. not given time to get back to your best point, why would you go through with the test at that point? Indeed, certainly. And you know, there's been so many, uh, if you dare say anything against the rally challenge, you will be attacked immediately online especially um, you know i i've said many things online it's been years since i've done because uh, the challenge hasn't been offered for years but um i know rupert sheldrake actually used my put my article up on one of my articles up on uh on his site about the challenge and it really it, it really does boil down to what does it matter i mean they're always putting out you know what why hasn't anybody won the million dollars it's like, what does it matter it's not going to matter to science it's a single experiment you're not going to believe it Randy's going to say it was a fraud. What does it matter? Yes, indeed. And I suppose, you know, <clears throat> to, to give Randy credit where credit's due, he was incredibly successful with it. And he, I'm sure, made a oh, lot yeah. of money. So all respect to him yeah. for doing that. It just doesn't really help the development of our knowledge. 
Yeah, Randy at one point was making, at least his gross was uh, estimated by some folks who knew him this back in the 80s as being close to the amount of money that parapsychology itself was funded in the United States. It's amazing. And he it? was making he was making his money off of the field of parapsychology in many yes, respects. Indeed. Very, very clever. And you know, yeah. you gotta give him respect for doing that, for being able to do that. Yeah, I think he was following along with what Houdini did. You know, he yeah. was a master of publicity and uh, you know, the Project Alpha thing, a lot of his his stuff was highly unethical and you know, uh, my first encounter encounter with him was a little weird too. So Okay, so let, let's move on away from that sort of thing and onto the actual science and um yeah. what what do you do you find to be because my main area of focus is is evidence for or against life after physical death mm-hmm. so what do you think from your research is is or have you found to be the most evidential um scientifically for such a hypothesis well um first i want to say that because of the philosophies that are kind of underlying science and approaches to evidence in general about human beings, especially in this, about consciousness. Um, materialists are coming at this in a particular way and people who are dualists or have at least open to the possibility that consciousness can exist without the body or after death um, are approaching it differently. So even within the field of parapsychology, you have a division of people when they look at the exact same evidence, what their explanations are, which can be, you know, to psychic very often, you know, paranormal in that sense. Um, so we, whatever evidence we have can be viewed generally by ma- the materialist parapsychologists in terms of super ESP or super, yeah. super size, yeah. we call it. Uh, with the exception, because uh, it's a real stretch, even according to some of the materialists in the field of children who remember previous lives. Whether that's evidence of reincarnation, of consciousness being reborn is still up in the air because there are other potential explanations, just not a typical ESP explanation. Um, so for that, so I think that that set of data, uh, that set of evidence is incredibly supportive of consciousness or something we would call personality surviving the death of that person's body. Yes, yeah, some kind of individuality and a mixture right. of, of thoughts, memories, etc. Right. Mm. Um, the other pieces that to me are really impressive, I mean, near-death experiences are impressive, except that they support consciousness separating from body, not that consciousness can exist after the complete death yes. of the body. Yes, that's true. True death. So that that's, it, but it's supportive, certainly. Mm. I think some, um, some aspects of the near-death experience, because that's one of my main areas of, of research, I've spoken to so many people, um, and... I spoke with Dr. Bruce Grayson recently, and he's he's right when he says, you know, because I brought out that argument, we, that doesn't tell us exactly what happens a, a long time after death. But he said, well, right. except those cases where um, people have, have received veridical information from a deceased person they saw during their death experience who's been dead for many years. So we, we can at least say that it seems, if we take that at face value, that that personality of the person that died has continued for however many years it's been. Again, whether so, that's yeah, eternity... That- that's absolutely right. And that leads me to the mediumship research that's been going on for the last few years, especially at uh, Winbridge Research Center and yes. a few other places. Judy Byshell, yeah. And uh, I mean, you can, of course, evoke the ESP possibility, but it gets, you know, I, I've been involved with a group called the Forever Family Foundation as president. It's, it's a nonprofit since 2013. Um, I met a lot of the mediums, have been involved in a lot of the activities, been involved with the foundation before that. And 
it's really interesting because I've had and seen psychics and, and readers and other people do readings of living people. There's a very big difference in, it's a qualitative difference. So this is the problem, it's qualitative. So if there's a real qualitative difference in what happens with a, a really good evidential medium and what happens with an evidential psychic. Because you can tell that it's pure information from the psychic and you can tell that there's more to it than just pure information from a medium. You get a sense of personality. And the problem here is it is qualitative and it's subjective on the, on the part of the person who's receiving that. But I, I rarely have actually had readings myself, but I've been watching other readings and you can tell, even if you're not the person who the reading is directed at, that there's a contextual difference, there's a qualitative difference in that there's something more going on with that. And then there are instances where some of these mediums may see, uh, you know, I do investigations, I do work with apparitional sightings and hauntings and, and things like that. And we've had some really interesting cases with multiple mediums over time who have not only gotten the same information, which one of my colleagues would say, well, that came from you, <laughs> from me, <laughs> because I knew this stuff. Um, although they didn't pick anything else up about me because these mediums couldn't do readings of living people. Uh, but they, there has been a continuation of the story in some instances. There has been kind of a, a almost a cross correspondence between mediums that happens with certain cases, with certain circumstances. Right. So two different sources saying the same thing about a particular case. Right. Mm. right. So there's enough here that, at least for me, is clear evidence of consciousness existing without the body. The, and then there are cases, of course, of, of people doing, you know, appearing in two places by location. By location. You know, this, this can happen and also in near-death experiences, but there are some really interesting cases in that mm. circumstance as well. And I suppose another and, form of that is shared death experiences as well. Yeah, and there are shared death experiences. Um, there, I have talked to people who have been around when someone, a terminal person has died and that person was having deathbed visions. And in a couple of instances of people I know, um, I met a, a hospice worker years ago who actually saw the figures that this person claimed that they were seeing. Right, I see. So he, he had the experience of seeing those, those spirits, those apparitions hmm. at the same time the person who was not lucid whatsoever got hyper lucid and yes. was able to have the conversation. Yes. And I mean, that's a whole other thing, isn't it, as well, terminal or paradoxical yeah. lucidity all, all comes together to form this big collection of evidence in support in my opinion of, of non-local oh absolutely absolutely you know but the and this is i i mean i get asked can you prove the existence of ghosts it's like you know this goes back to an issue to a fundamental question in science right now can we prove the existence of consciousness and can we agree upon a definition of consciousness and i can't prove the, the continuation of something that science has not figured out yet you know this is the this is really you know if you're a true materialist uh your brain is it, you die and there's nothing. Yes. So there's no possibility that anything can survive. But that's not what a lot of neuroscientists and other people believe. <laughs> that's not their opinion. There's, there's so many different ways of looking at consciousness right now. And uh, I, I often kind of have to raise this question, you know, define consciousness for me because until science can figure that out, where it is, where we know it is or assume it is, it's kind of hard, unless, of course, we ended up getting a bunch of, of ghosts who were willing to 
come into the laboratory and participate in some yeah. lengthy experiments. And, and that has been tried, of course, with Dr. Gary Schwartz, and um, now yeah. he's got the Soul Phone <clears throat> Foundation going on. Right, and it will be interesting to see what he comes up with with that. Um, you know, the, the experience that he had with Susie Smith, the late parapsychology author at the University of Arizona, uh, and Julie Beischel has had some experience with her as well. That's helpful in terms of indicating that there's another point of information outside of what the medium, the spirit the medium is supposedly talking to, but nothing's been done about trying to, to detect or figure out what the ghost is made out of or mm. what, you know, what, right. Yeah. Cause we don't even necessarily know where to look. I mean, what, where to start with that. Mm, indeed. So um, before we move on to uh, something that I haven't touched on, which I'd like to is um, what you call the traditional paranormal investigation, going to a haunted location and, and yeah. Before we get on to that though, what, what would you say to, those who insist that the brain is we know for certain or for near enough certain that the brain creates consciousness because of this such tight correlations and the lack of a mechanism of how a non-local consciousness would, e would even interact with with the brain well first I, I you know i don't have a problem with the brain creating consciousness um I, I think that there is one interpretation of consciousness after death that our consciousness our personality develops from the brain the question then becomes what is that if is it just Part of the, the the programming or is it something more because there's an awful lot of indication that, that consciousness is more mind is more than just brain uh and it, and it's not dead certain so to speak that the brain definitely creates all of conscious or consciousness again these children this piece with these children is an indicator something more is actually happening there so you know, when people say it's absolutely certain that this is going on, it's like, yeah, it's not. We don't know enough about the brain yet. We still ha are, have a lot of unanswered questions. And Gary Schwartz actually used uh, an analogy, which I thought was really apt when I saw him uh, had a workshop with him years ago. Um, it wasn't his. I don't recall who he didn't really say whose it was. But if you think of your TV set hooked up to cable or satellite and your TV set, has a has a mechanic has a problem a fault in it a short or something like that you know with older tv sets with tubes and things you had problems with the horizontal and the vertical and stuff like that but that did not mean the signal was bad it just meant that the interface was bad yes and if you did something to the tv it looked like you were affecting the signal not the but you really weren't you're just affecting the interface and if the brain is the interface even if it's created consciousness is created but still we have to deal with the brain and the body in general, then it makes sense. And then you have those cases of hydrocephaly, um, hydrocephalic people. There was, you know, there've been incredible cases of people, rare, who had parts of chunks of their brain missing, yet they had full capacity of faculty. And even so, went, on, went, went on to become, I can't remember the case, who became a, um, a, a mathematics whiz, so to speak. Was, was it, I can't remember the name of the guy. Yeah, I, I mean, you have situations like that, and it's very clear we don't know a lot about the brain. We don't know enough about the brain that's going on. Certainly. Sure. Okay, so, um, yeah, so paranormal investigation that involves, um, does, does it commonly involve, say, going to a reportedly haunted location? Because there are so many um, television shows and uh, YouTube shows that, that show people investigating these paranormal um, yeah, these things that are often often you can tell is is entertainment first you know, investigation. Well, after. You know, and I, I think that's a key point right there. And, and you have to, you know, having grown up in the television industry with my dad working for NBC, I had an uncle work for CBS. 
actually one of my brothers works for NBC right now. And um, I, I, you know, I was around production. Uh, my dad was a producer. I was around production. I actually helped out, uh, worked a little bit as a runner for some of the sports events. I was around for a lot yeah. of this. So yeah. um, when I watch these shows and I've been involved in these kinds of shows since the eighties, I've been involved in news pieces, uh, some of the lengthier shows and even a couple of those ghost hunter shows over the years. And it's the, really the producers who are providing what you see on the screen in a couple of different ways. For one thing, they're editing the show how they want to edit it. Yes. But what most people don't remember, don't know is even though these are unscripted shows, um, you end up with the director or producer who's there in the field with you telling you to walk back into the room again, this time act surprised. Mm. Or can you say what you just said, but say it differently? Can you say it shorter? And actually, I've been cut out of a couple of shows because I had a, a couple of directors in, in one for Unsolved Mysteries years ago who, who wanted me to actually say that the case was demonic, when in fact it was not only not, demo, not demonic or apparitional, it was actually a, possibly a poltergeist case. And even the couple who experienced it, who were no longer living in this house, didn't think it was demonic. But that's what he wanted to produce. Yes, it, it gives more of a shock value, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you really can't take these shows as anything other than entertainment, provided you're entertained. Uh, true investigators, investigation, this, I'm in the middle of teaching a course for the Rhine Center right now on this. Uh, first of all, we don't investigate places just because people think they're haunted. In other words, the, the whole idea of going to these public places for television, the main reason for that, and this has also been stuff that I've done on TV, is because taking people to a private home where people are in distress is somewhat unethical. And we can't guarantee their privacy after that. You know, it's different if they right. contacted the TV company, but we, it, we, you know, I'm constantly asked, I was just asked again by someone connected to a Netflix show. <clears throat> can you keep an eye out for cases, family cases we can take people to? It's like, you know, um, if there is a group of family, they will probably be over with because part of our ethical conundrum is we want the data, but we also want to help the people and the people yeah. want it to stop. Yes. So with public locations, and I've done many of them myself, um, the big mistake that is done on television is working off of either rumor folklore or past write-ups of the location as being haunted. And in many of these places, they're abandoned. In other words, they, or there's no one there. There are literally no witnesses of anything current other than the investigators themselves who, who freak themselves out. Right, right. So we always start with cases that have active witnesses, people we can talk to. Um, on occasion, we have done investigations of places that had local rumor, but still I want the local historian or someone else to give me the story behind this, this case. And I actually want there to be relatively recent indications that someone's had an experience there too. We, we define go, the paranormal. I mean, we define all these experiences as experiences. I mean, if you, if you go into a building and there's no witnesses, how do you know it's haunted? Yeah. And you can't go in and just decide it's haunted because you have weird readings on devices. That does not mean it's haunted. Uh, it's haunted because a human being had an experience there. We think of apparitions as someone who has been experienced, communicated, interacted with by a living human being. 
you know, all these phenomena rely on the definition from the human experience, the living human experience. And without that, what are you really investigating? Yes, indeed. So what, what is the, the process of, of actually investigating? What equipment do you use? What do they mean? And you know, what does that suggest for what the actual apparition or phenomena could be? Well, besides, you know, one of the things I teach my students and have for years, because I was taught this, is that the most important skill you can learn is actually interviewing skills. Um, you know, actually asking questions and listening to that. But beyond that, uh, you look at the physical location, you, without using any fancy equipment necessarily, you try to figure out if for every event that people report, this is where the reports come in. So you have a report of activity in a house or in a building. Um, you need to determine for every one of the reports, it should be more than just, I saw a ghost here. Because if that could have been six months ago, and maybe there's no ghost there now. <clears throat> right. Uh, so you really want to explore the normal explanations for every single little event that was reported, as well as the overall case. So looking the for, technology we, looking, for yeah. sorry, so looking for natural explanations to the anecdotes before assuming that it must correct. be paranormal. Yeah, that is I'd correct. Agree. And while you're there also... Uh, and we found, uh, even in the best cases that I've had, if there had been individual events that people reported or experiences they reported that had a normal explanation, because people are on edge when they've had this kind of experience. Mm -hmm. So, and we're not debunking. I mean, the, the TV shows make a big deal about using the term debunking. We're not, because the word debunking implies fraud or lying. And these people may be mistaken, but they're not lying. No, they genuinely uh, believe what they believe. Yeah. 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 So then the equipment that we use um, has been, you know, haven't used a lot. I don't, there's a whole spread of equipment that's out there right now for ghost hunters. If you go to these ghost shops online <laughs> and uh, there are several issues here. Uh, we use EMF meters to begin with to see if there was any change in the electromagnetic environment when someone had an experience. So not only when people, what they reported, so where they reported it, is there something unusual? but when they specifically experience something. So kicking the witnesses out, for example, which some shows tend to do is counterproductive because the witnesses are the ones who are seeing or experiencing something. Mm. And what you want is anomalies that connect to the human experience. Because honestly, the readings on any equipment mean absolutely nothing. There's no context or meaning unless there's an experience there. Whether that is from one of the witnesses, perhaps from one of the investigators, depending on well tra how trained they are to not make suppositions yeah um or from really good i mean i work with psychics and mediums and have for for decades after vetting them in different mm -hmm. ways mm -hmm. uh, but i want to see the correlations between changes in the environment and actually what some human is detecting but with an emf meter for example most emf meters that are out there are going to pick up the electromagnetic fields put out by our technology yes right so um, I, I kind of kiddingly say I've probably found more bad wiring in homes than I have found anything to do with the paranormal. And I, I have actually referred people to electricians a number of times over the years. <laughs> because yeah, um, you found the 40 so, wiring with the so, EMF. Yeah, I mean, so there's, I mean, that's what it's really useful for, honestly. It's yeah, really absolutely. good for that. Yeah. Um, so using, uh, you use thermometers. I mean, we have different types of thermometers, but you, you don't even have to spend a lot of money just because it's, these, these uh, a lot of the uh, shops make their own, they, or they stamp their own name on something. And I think I saw 
somebody was selling a little ball that lights up apparently if it's moved at all. Okay. And they were selling it for 20 bucks and it was a cat toy, which you could buy for about three. <laughs> yeah. So nice. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we will use, uh, when possible, we have used geomagnetometers because there has been a correlation between local geomagnetic fields and people's psychic experiences. Um, there's not some really inexpensive good ones, unfortunately. I've been fortunate to do that for television occasionally. Um, we do check for those cold spots that people report, but it's turned out in general that they're not physically cold. They're just emotionally cold. Right. Okay. Uh, which is really interesting in and of itself. What does what does uh, that have, what does that imply? Emotion being emotionally cold. What does that? How would you define? Um, that? You know, you can get a cold chill because you heard something. <laughs> Ah, see, right. Okay. And because you feel cold does not mean it's physically cold. I see. Uh, you could feel hot without it being physically hot. You know, people can get, pe women, women of a certain age get hot flashes. Yes. That does not mean it's physically it's hot outside. Mm. So you have to look for those kinds of things. Um, random event generators, random number generators, which we often use in within our <clears throat> laboratory work can be very handy in the location. The basic problem being that some of these devices, if they are potentially affected by living people's consciousness, which we know that random event generators are, that we don't necessarily know there's a spirit there or somebody, something there. So we're really mainly look, using environmental sensors to determine, again, changes in the environment when something paranormal is experienced. And yes. what that tells us is that something that a human experiences as a ghost can potentially impact the environment. It doesn't tell us that there's a ghost present there, though, because there can be other possible Factors, explanations. Yeah. I've always been curious because ghosts or apparitions or non-embodied consciousnesses seem to often or, or seem to be, you know, necessarily non-physical in nature. So non-tangible, non-tangible, immaterial, immaterial. Yeah. So yeah. what I would wonder is how then do we, are they able to interact with, with the physical, with the material to generate these, these readings? So, um, well, I, I, I can give you, here's an interesting speculation from a physicist who was a skeptic after a case that I had, um, where, um, a couple was, was telling us that they had a woman walking through their house and actually playing with their little two-year-old daughter uh, in her crib. And they're perfectly okay with the ghosts, by the way. Um, and while we were there, myself and a colleague were there, we were told that she was there. She was in the room. Now we didn't see anything, but both of them were pointing to one, to one spot moving. And Brian and I had EMF meters and we were picking up a change in EMF about two feet behind where they were pointing. And it was consistent to, it was moving around and we're picking this up in a moving field. Right. So I explained this to this physicist that I talked to who I specifically sought out someone who was skeptical but open, explained what was going on. And he said, look, you know, um, I couldn't tell you what ghosts are made of. I don't even believe in ghosts, but let's speculate for a minute here that whatever a ghost is made out of was interacting with the, the electromagnetic environment, the natural electromagnetic environment that was there and was leaving a wake, like a boat leaves a wake in a lake. Yep. And we were picking up the changes from that interaction that it had. Now we think of it as immaterial because we can't touch the ghost, but energy is immaterial 
and there have been other speculations of what, what consciousness is outside the body as well, that is still physical. I mean, I, I have a hard time sometimes with the word non-physical. I know what people mean by that, but it's really not non-physical in the sense that it still fits in the physical universe in that way. Um, that's one type of interaction. The other is on the devices is the same as living people would have, which is psychokinetic. Or the idea that we can move objects or affect objects. And there are some instances of apparitional cases where that does happen. It's more common if it's, if it's in poltergeist cases, which is living agents with that. But it, it does come up with EVP, for example, electronic voice phenomena. I don't do a lot of that because haven't found that there's been useful information from EVP, especially when you consider that the operator may be actually causing the voice right. through psychokinesis. Either way, True. it's happening because of psychokinesis. It's either the mind of, the, of an apparition or the mind of a living person or both. Yes, certainly. The most common saying when it comes to, to this sort of thing is, don't be silly, there's no such thing as ghosts. We know that. What would you say to those that, that say that and that say um, everything <clears> or <throat> every report of paranormal activity or of anything like that is all anecdotal and therefore does not bring any value at all to science? Almost all social science is anecdotal and brings no value to science. That's what I would say. Um, years ago, I worked at uh, one of the, the labs here in the Bay Area. Uh, it was the Department of Energy Lab. It was Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And I met a number of physicists and had some conversations with them about parapsychology. And some of them were aware of it. And they, they would say that parapsychology is not a science. And I would, I would ask them the, a second question, uh, which was, um, is psychology a science? And every single one of them said, no, psychology is not a science. And for the same reason, it's subjective, it's anecdotal. Um, there's a difference between social science and hard science, and we are dealing with social science in this instance. Sure. So, you know, when people tell me that it's that, you know, you're silly, you believe in ghosts, it's like, well, I'm sure you have a lot of silly beliefs as well, including that one you just stated. <laughs> Absolutely. So would, would you not say that um, kind of the measure, being able to measure the EMF differences and through um, psi experiments, like through Dean Radin and, and folks like that, who have gathered the gathered these um, these statistically significant results? Would you not say that that kind of adds some some kind of hardness objectivity to it? Yeah. I, well, you know, there are um, certain types of experiments. Some of Dean's experiments, um, the remote viewing work that has been done, is replicable. The Gonsfeld studies that have been done are replicable. You know, when when people tell me that you know this stuff doesn't exist, there's no repeatable experiments. It's like yes, there are and you just don't don't want to look at them which is really usually the case um, yeah. this all supports non-local consciousness that we have the ability to pick up information at a distance or non-locally uh, the evidence for psychokinesis is a little bit more challenging in some instances but there is the random event generator evidence from the paralab the research that was done there and there's been a lot of repeatability in some of in that as well um, it's a lot harder to have macro or visible psychokinesis as really good evidence, just simply because we can't find the, the person who can produce it on demand in the laboratory or in, in life for that matter, typically. Makes it more difficult. But this, all of this supports non-local consciousness. I know that um, Dean Radin's work and indeed <clears throat> uh, Daryl Bem's work has been criticized as being methodologically unsound. 
and that's what caused the results. What, what would you think about that kind of accusation? Well, for one thing, you know, BEM study, the, the one that caused all the furor back in 2011, um, the uh, feeling the future study, which is what it was, you know, the reaction to that when it was first announced by the, the journal that it, the article was coming out, the paper was coming out, was, and if people look on, on the web, you can find some really fun articles where scientists all over the world were trashing the, the publication for doing this, uh, trashing BAM. You know, Daryl BAM is a well-respected social psychologist. And it just, it, I remember some articles where the journalists would ask, well, have you read the paper? And the usual response is, why would I? It's not even possible. And one of the journalists said, if you haven't read the paper, you don't even know if his results were positive. They could have been chance. Yes, and again, yes. the, the, the response was something, well, it's not even possible. Why would he even do that research? It's, it's worthless. So there's that attitude. Now, um, his research was looked at and was found totally methodologically sound. But it called into question Bayesian statistics, which were the statistical method that he used uh, because the people doing the analysis said, well, if there's nothing wrong with the method and these are the actual results, then there must be something wrong with statistics, with Bayesian statistics. And that caused a lot of problem because most psychology experiments, or many of them anyway, are based using Bayesian statistics. And if Bem, who had never been criticized for misusing statistics and had not misused them at that point, was using a method that is flawed, that meant that what we know about psychology in a lot of instances is totally flawed as well. Seems to be a case of, again, you know, presupposing it must be false. And therefore, if we can't attack the methods, we must attack something because it must be That's false. Correct. We just need to find what's wrong. Right. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that's always a really an interesting, interesting thing. I think it was last year, a couple of folks from the, uh, from PSYCOP, from the, the, what is it, the Center for um, Scientific Inquiry now? I don't know. It's something like yeah, that. Yeah. For, it's the Center for Inquiry, what PSYCOP, the skeptics organization became. Uh, in the Skeptical Inquirer, they published an article looking at um, the laws of physics, you know, the, the Newtonian laws and how ESP valid, uh, invalidates or seems to have a problem. The laws of physics will not allow ESP to exist. And they started out with the article by saying, we didn't, you know, we're, we're freak, we'll just admit that we didn't look at the data at all or the research at all because it's impossible. And here's why it's impossible. Uh, neither one of them were physicists. And there was another skeptic who posted a critique of their, their critique and said that they had misused the laws of physics and then actually gave openings for ESP to exist, right, even, though he didn't, even though he did not believe ESP existed. And he stated that too. Mm, or even more, he believed it was impossible because of the laws. The, the guy doing the critique of their critique of their statements, um, I don't know that he actually said it was uh, that it was impossible. He just didn't believe that he just didn't believe was real. it. I see. Yeah. Mm. Although there are there are articles out there that do claim that maybe they're they're careful to not use the word impossible, but they say you know almost impossible or very 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 unlikely, like from um, Sean Carroll and. Um, Oh, what's his name? I can never remember this guy's name. The astrophysicist, the English guy, uh, famous guy, uh, Brian Cox. Um, oh, Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah, folks like that who say that, you know, if consciousness was to, for instance, be received by the brain, there would be physical correlates. And because we don't see, we don't understand anywhere in the brain that could act as the receiver for this, we don't see any, let's say, physical correlations. 
Um, and the well, laws of physics just don't allow things like ghosts and everything to exist. Or the Hydron Collider would have found them or something like that. I remember one of the articles. Yeah, again, there's, there's, um, there's a problem there. And that, first of all, there are those who are working on the reception issue. And I, I know that uh, Roger Penrose yeah. and Stuart, Stuart Hammeroff. Um, Hammeroff, yeah, are, mm. are looking at you know microtubules in the brain. There, there's models that are involving quantum physics. The, honestly, the, the problem, there's a couple of issues though, when it comes right down to it. I mean, this is, this is these are our questions. Um, if it is a quantum process, because information, you know, there is one idea that I've seen some theory that the smallest packet of information of, of uh, anything in the universe would be information. And there are those that believe that, you know, the, un the universe is made up of information. Of course, there are those in physics who put out the simulation hypothesis also. Yes, yes. Um, but if we are working on a quantum basis for information transfer, then when I receive information, the question then is how does number one, that work? How does information kind of get into the brain in a way that's received? How does it scale up in the brain so that it's registered by the gross matter of the brain? And then how do I consciously decode that information? Yeah. So there are issues for quantum physics, neuroscience, and psychology in that way. But those are questions that need to be asked in order to understand how, what the process is. The other side of that is how does information get coded by a living brain or the universe into the quanta to begin with mm. to be and, received yeah. by sent and received? And this is a key part of the hard problem, isn't it, of, of consciousness? Right, right. You know, but, you know, we have models of information transfer right now. There's um, physics working on um, quantum entanglement and transferring information that way. It seems that we can learn how to encode information on the quantum from a physics perspective, whether that is naturally happening is a whole different story. Um, you know, some people in my, even in my field, will use the, the, the quantum entanglement as a metaphor for how it works with telepathy, for example. But that's a very different thing. You know, um, a lot of times it's language and how we're describing these things too. Yes, absolutely. It, it come, language comes with interpretation, doesn't it? Yeah, and then there's common phrases. I mean, even the word ghost means different things to different people around the world. There's cross-cultural stuff with that. Um, it, I always have to define what I'm talking about when I'm giving lectures because people may not read the same, you know, read the same material, may not get that. And we have to do that constantly. We've actually talked in our field about renaming the field and renaming some of the phenomena. The problem is that we have the huge amount of the general public that sees these words. And unless you can define them along the way, getting new words and new concepts into the language, it would be easier if we could um, go viral with a video or on social media, get it accepted that way than it would in any other way. Uh, and phrases sometimes come out of pop culture. I mean, Quantum Leap, my, one of my colleagues, Ed May, who was the guy who ran the Stargate program, the remote viewing program for the government, um, he, and I, he's, he laughs every time somebody says, you know, we want to take a quantum leap forward. Because a quantum leap would be the smallest leap you could possibly <laughs> yeah. make. Yes, absolutely. So I suppose um, a couple more things, I suppose, that, that re relate to this. First one would be, what, what would you say to somebody who's say very religious uh, who believes that anything like this that they would call the occult is is dangerous and is very bad material to get into uh, things like um, paranormal investigation ouija boards uh, seances things like that 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's really hard to deal with people who are devout in, in their religion. The reality is that um, cross-culturally and looking at religions around the world and peoples around the world, people do not believe the same thing. Um, there may be a core of there's one God or multiple gods, but there's so much of it that is interpretational. So when I, um, I was doing, for several years, I was in college lectures, mainly around Halloween, uh, traveling around the country, uh, speaking on ghosts and, and my research, my work, and I would inevitably get a, a question from one of the schools in what we call the Bible Belt here. Right. Um, that you know, asked me about demons. Yes. <clears throat> and because I didn't mention them at all, um, and I have to, I, you know, I'll be right up front and say, look, I grew up ultra-reformed Judaism. Uh, we didn't have demons, devils, hell, or any of that. I think I'm much better for it for that reason. And then I would also say that, you know, if you read the Old Testament, it's not the de demons you have to worry about. It's it's the angels that you have to worry about because they're the ones who carried the flaming swords and killed people, <laughs> right. punished people. Yeah. It wasn't demons. Demons are, are barely there at all. Um, so what I usually tell people, I, you know, I'll say that. Um, I'll kiddingly say, I, you know, these days I'm a Jedi, which often derails people. Um, but really what it boils down to is you have your belief based on what you were taught um, not everyone's taught the same thing. The evidence of things like Ouija boards boils down to what your intention is. I have 12 of them here in my house. Got one in my home office here right now. They have not attracted demons or devils at all. Of course, those people would also say that I am perpetrating, you know, putting out the devil's word yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, I have been accused of that on, on occasion. Um, mm. You know, I try to be respectful, but. Uh, I'll be very honest, we have not done some cases because the the, couple, the family was so intent that what they had happening to them was demonic that we could not help them at all. Yes. Uh, and and in fact, in one of those cases, it was very clearly not paranormal at all. They had a normal explanation. But even when we showed them yes. what was yeah. going on, they still insisted it was demonic. So the I believe it's so ingrained. Yeah, I, I really pushed them to talk to their priest. Or their, you know, their ministry. Mm. If they were Catholic, it was a little easier. If they were in some other types of uh, Christian offshoot here in the states, it, their minister probably would have done something to them. Yeah, it seems at that point you kind of go into the realm of, of counseling rather than paranormal investigation to, to yeah. work out these yeah. beliefs and, and re rewire their expectations. I mean, and, we... and, and really, there's honestly with deeply held religious conviction, there's really no way to to do that. Uh, not that anybody would ever call me in if they thought, you know. Uh, it, there was a, there was something in their house because our folks in our field would not be immediately jumping to the demon thing or really dealing with a religious perspective at all. What, what do you think about things like possession and the difference between good spirits, bad spirits? Well, you know, from an anthropological perspective, the word possess, this is where words come in. Uh, in anthropology, possession covers good and bad, essentially. You know, there are many cultures around the world that have practices where uh, Brazilian spiritists are possessed when they... yes. When they're speaking to spirits, yeah, when they're uh, channeling, mm. yeah. Um, so um, I think they're, you know, the language is is important, and w one of the things that has affected people of today goes back directly to the kind of craze around the movie The Exorcist back in the '70s. Pop culture has more of an influence on most Western culture, at least, than science does, mm. or religion in some respects. Mm. People misinterpret those kinds of things. I have yet to see a case of possession of the sense of someone being forcibly taken over. 
Um, I've seen mediums who have had, you know, were doing their thing and had a spirit, you know, as they put it, jump in, perhaps without permission. And every one of those mediums, and I've, I've asked mediums over the years, what do you think about possession? And every single one of them said, well, if somebody jumped in without my permission and I wanted them out, I just kick them out. And I said, yeah. how do you do that? He says, well, you say to yourself, say to this thing, get out. Because <laughs> they they all firmly believe that living people have more power than the dead. Right. Um, you know, there are those cases that are a little questionable, what we what's called sometimes spirit attachment, where people think that there's a spirit with them that is whispering in the ear, kind of like the, you know, the old devil and angel on your shoulders, and there's someone whispering in your ears, and there are, there is belief systems around spirits that are attracted to certain people because they're similar in nature, so someone who is an alcoholic might end up with a spirit that was an alcoholic in life, and this spirit is trying to get kind of feed off of yeah. that person's alcoholism. Like, like a magnet, like, like attracts like sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in those circumstances, what's interesting is that um, I've had some, some circumstances where, where a medium or psychic I was working with actually saw something or would pick up on something and others, not at all. But um, I've got a friend of mine who has been teaching spirit releasement therapy, which is hypnosis, just using hypnosis to get to the person and say, get out yeah essentially yeah. do the same thing so it i haven't seen or i mean i've read about a couple of cases of really interesting possession but not from a demonic perspective and considering most of the cases we see where people are claiming that they're someone in their household is possessed we're dealing with teenagers and you know i hate to make a joke but all, almost all, all teenagers are possessed <laughs> yes yeah, not absolutely. by spirits but not by, by something spirits, else yeah yeah indeed yeah. So one very, very common, perhaps the most common argument that I've seen amongst mainly philosophers of this kind of thing is that um, the appeal to consensus, the consensus of, of science in general does not accept this as, as genuine. So that's a reasonable argument to suggest because these scientists would assumably know a lot more about the data and the research and have come to the conclusion that it's not true. We should therefore take that as an argument against it. Well, first, I think if science in general would look at parapsychology research and then make that pronouncement, I feel a lot better about that pronouncement. But they are making a pronouncement of something they know nothing about. They're starting with false assumptions. Uh, and that's not science. I mean, the, the, the idea of what happened with Daryl Bem's paper, for example, for uh, a mainstream scientist to be saying, you know, making statements and actually outgoing statements criticizing this journal for publishing this paper and then be saying i'm not going to read i'm not going to read the paper because it's impossible it's not scientific that's highly unscientific and so when there's this discussion about mainstream science it's really academia that is saying that psychic phenomena doesn't exist they're making that statement from a position of lack of knowledge ignorance yeah so it's like saying the earth is flat because you haven't gathered evidence that the earth is round or traveled to the edge of the world or non-edge of the world to Indeed, see yeah. if it's really flat or not yes. and we we have instances in science you know when the wright brothers flew their 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 plane in the early 1900s at, at kitty hawk there were witnesses there who saw it but science and 
people in general didn't accept it at all, didn't accept the witness testimony, didn't accept any of it for weeks after that. It was not physically possible for that to happen. Yes, indeed. I, so I, was, we, I was told an interesting, similar example to that by um, Dr. Harold Vallack, who wrote the Galileo Commission report, and you've probably heard of it. Uh, he, he gave me an example of, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it, it was hundreds of years ago um, mm -hmm. that everybody and science included believed that the heart was a kind of a convection heater or something of that nature, not a pump. Whatever it was, it wasn't a pump. And um, everybody that listened, when it was proposed that the heart is a pump and pumps blood around the body, everybody who listened, scientists including, could not hear a heartbeat. And they insisted, because we could not hear that heartbeat, that it couldn't be, you know, it was as we thought a convection heater. And when more data came out and that became the the predominant theory that it was a pump, everybody could hear it suddenly. Right. And I think if that's true, that shows exactly how these biases take effect. People can look at um, experience data, you know, think about all the data we have as being, you know, people talk about being objective. We have objective phenomena. We have objective world. But every bit of the objective world is perceived and interpreted from a subjective perspective. So there is no way to, even, even in the hard sciences, you cannot remove subjectivity from the process because the interpretation of the data is subjective. Now it may be based on uh, a lot of information, but it's still subjective in that way. Um, I'm also remembering the, uh, you know, there's the example of meteorites that the rocks did not fall from the sky. Gorillas did not exist. I mean, until you actually gather the information and look at the question, you can't make a statement. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't make a statement that this is impossible to do. Yes. And that's, that's just generally, I mean, it was impossible for a human being to run a four minute mile until Roger Bannister did it in 1954. It was impossible. And then many people did it after that because it was no longer seen as impossible. Yes, it was seen as a goal something yeah. to aim for yeah so last question before i let you go lloyd as my channel is mainly focused on looking at evidence for life after death what do you think did you what has your um research and your experiences given you in terms of the conclusion or the belief of what happens to us after physical death well um i can't say much about what the afterlife is like i get asked that one all the time um i don't know that um all I can say is something I'm pulled from science fiction, which is it's likely more different than anything we can imagine. Consequently, we don't have any language to describe it, which is why I think mediums typically use a very kind of a, a similar language across the world because they it's working off their own perceptions. Um, I, I personally believe that consciousness is, I don't know what to call, call it, an energy, a field of, of something. Um, of one course. science fiction writer called it a field of quantum particles. Uh, but there is the consciousness does stay intact to some some degree after death, and the way consciousness can interact with the world is through what we call psi, through ESV and psychokinesis. Uh, if you think about it, a person without a body, how do they even see us? How do they hear us? That has to be through an ESP, you know, an extrasensory form of perception. So there's that. Um, it does not appear that everybody sticks around here. On this in, in this world, our Earth, um, as a ghost. That's pretty clear because of the numbers that are not seen 
yeah. and the sheer numbers of experiences that people have with the person who's deceased either at the moment of death over a couple of days and then they never see or see or experience them again so and we have many interactions from mediums and witnesses about the reason why someone has stuck around here uh it's it's varied you know i'll see pronouncements by psychics that they don't know that they're dead or they have unfinished business and yeah that's true for some people but that's the same for you know ghosts are people too they're just you know dead people yeah. in that sense and then wherever they move on to or whatever that state of existence is i can't even comment about what that could be um they go you know they they leave maybe they discorporate maybe there's nothing maybe consciousness only sticks around for a few days and there is no afterlife Although the evidence would seem to indicate something to the contrary, that there is an afterlife, you know, something beyond here. Uh, but there's enough evidence that consciousness can stay, at least the personality can stay intact, even if they're they are perceiving the world in a very different way than we are. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Seeking Eye Life Exploration Podcast. If you did and would like to continue following my research, please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel and following the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. You can also join our Facebook discussion group. You can find the link to this and other Seeking Eye online profiles at seeking-eye.com. Thank you.